0: Do you have a record player?
1: No, no. I I, um... I had a bunch of tall records at one point, but I just, it's it's just so much easier to just put in a pair of headphones and and be done with it. I've I have a one and a half year old. I can't just sit and listen to music. Ooh.
0: Hello out there. This week, Nick and I are going to be talking about another Jethro Tull song on the very first album. This was Nick. What
1: is the song we are tackling today? Song number three on the album is Beggar's Farm. Beggar's Farm, ladies and gentlemen. Wow. It's it's Beggar's Farm. There's a lot. This song has so much going on in it. Yeah, yeah. There is some some tasty funk. There's a there's some English on there. That is that a sports term? English. Put a little English on it. Yeah. I think it's a traditionally a sports term, but it's it's give it give it a little, a little extra. Yeah. A little little, little little Jimmy there. Yeah, a little spin. Yeah, it's. This is the first one that feels to me very. Um, it breaks from that. Like this is blues. This is jazz. Yep. This this is this is rock. This is the first song
0: on the album that, that for me feels distinctly like a Jethro Tull song. Bingo. And there are so many elements that are in this song that we can see in later albums um you know right from the very first riff, the opening riff with the rhythmic flute. Um it is you know he's using the techniques of the jazz flautists, but he's actually doing something a little bit different, which is which is using the flute to lay down um, uh, a repeating riff uh, like the guitar is doing, mm. setting the scene for for the vocals.
1: Yeah, this is so, like we said, song number three. It's by the way, don't forget, I can play the flute. Sure, and it's and and damn, he's back in full force, and it is solid, and it's. It is this, like you said, for the song in general, this flute feels more tall to me,
0: especially when we get into the um, the the raptus, the flute raptus toward the end, the flute solo.
1: That breakdown is
0: tasty. Mm-hmm. It's so good. And and yeah. you really get a sense of his of Ian Anderson's um expression, uh his ego to a certain extent, his um just his sheer energy with that instrument. I mean, it's so easy to see why people were drawn to this band, especially live. Yeah. You know, because let's remember they were they were getting a name for themselves playing live before this album even dropped.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's um that that flute offers if nothing else uh a degree of mobility that that someone on guitar or bass would not have absolutely so he was able to to bop around and jump and and allow that energy to carry him
0: yeah and i think you know part of what's so fascinating about it what works so well for the sound is that it's a lyric instrument that he's using percussively Mm. As well, well as lyrically and, and rhythmically. Yeah. And so it, it has a really astonishing effect on the listener, especially when you hear it for the first time. Yeah. The other thing that's happening in this song that I want to point out that's so fascinating is there's sort of a – there's a little bit of a prefiguration of their um, – of of the later more complicated uh, mixed time signatures mm. that are that you hear in later albums where it switches between – you know 2/4 and 3/4 a lot in those later albums this they're not they're staying in 4/4 four, four, um but there's still that that distinct rhythmic shift they're kind of double timing it and then going back to the the common time
1: that common time it's it, it's when it's when Kornick's bass really shines. Like that that flute pulls back, and the 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 kind of hectic guitar pulls back, and there's just Glenn Cornick in the back going boom, 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 yeah. boom, boom. So <laughs> absolutely, all the way through. Yeah, absolutely. And it's and it's, it's nice though. It, it it carries it through. It's the backbone. It's doing what the bass is supposed to do. Um, and I like it. I think it 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 makes it more cohesive. If we didn't have that, I think it would be a little more jarring to have those, those switches.
0: But as it is, it functions in a way to keep it. It's, it's almost like it keeps drawing you further into, to the song
1: and it, it mesmerizes you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um it's that, that, that spiral, that spinning spiral that you just kind of like slowly sink into. Right. It's not a, it's not a gentle descent, but it feels good. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um,
0: you know, and then content-wise, it's interesting because Beggar's Farm feels a little bit like a continuation of Someday the Sun Won't Shine for You emotionally. Yeah. It's so fascinating, you know, like rock. I feel like rock in general and popular music in general um, uh, is sort of, you know, there are obviously repeated themes. And, and this is something that you... I feel like you don't hear that often in, in popular music. And I think that, that, that's part of the reason that, that I got into tall in the first place was because they were expressing thoughts and feelings that you didn't hear expressed a lot. You know, this song is not the typical, like, Ooh, baby, you're so hot. Like I'm going to woo you with my sick rock music. And it's also not, it's also not that like, oh, please come back to me because, you know, whatever.
1: And I'm so sad. It's really a distinct feeling and it's not necessarily a pleasant one. Right. Yeah. But it's honest. It's honest. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's another relationship song. Um, but again, it's it's singing what he knows. He's 21. And I actually read that Beggar's Farm is a metaphor for being in the gutter, mm. which it is in itself a metaphor, if not if not him physically saying he will see this person in the gutter. Yeah. So is this, is this song a cautionary tale? Ooh, you mean like a, like a, like a threat? No, no, not a threat,
0: but a a warning. Oh, interesting. Interesting. You know, so is he, is he speaking to the listener or is he speaking to, to an individual?
1: I feel, I feel like it's an individual person. Right. Um, but he's, I mean, he's saying, you, you don't fool me. I know what you feel. Don't ignore what I say, or you'll, you're will you going to find your way down on Duggar's Form, or you're going to find your way in the gutter. Yeah. So I, I could see how that is somehow a threat, but in terms of the feeling of Tull in general, I, I, I don't think it would be. Yeah, yeah. But that being said, the 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 first two the next two lines in the second stanza are i pay my money for new returns i think i need you
0: it's interesting yeah i i i get the sense of an inevitability about it in terms of whatever this relationship
1: is it's destined to to crash and burn we see that we know that it's gonna happen but let's make the best of it let's let's go through the motions to prevent it from being that way, even though it's in an in inevitability right i don't I don't know maybe that's too much
0: no i I think I think you're on it. you know something that you and I have talked a lot about is um the sheer just intelligence of Ian anderson um especially as opposed to you know like a lot of other rock musicians, both in his both in his lyrics and just in his. This just the ideas that he expresses are tend to be more complex and more nuanced than I think a lot of rock music mm. generally is. Yeah. Um And, you know, one thing that I think happens with people who are highly intelligent is that they see stuff coming. <laughs> yeah,
1: fair enough. That's valid. Yeah. Aren't necessarily able to do anything about it. You see the two pieces that are going to interact, and you know how they're going to interact. Right. You know the vinegar and the baking soda is going to blow up. Right. And You see them going toward one another, but you don't know when it's going to happen. Right. And there's nothing you can do about it. And there's nothing you can do about it. It's science. It's science, Beggar's Farm.
0: Another thing I would like to talk tall to you about is... uh, this is the first song for me where, where I think we start to hear Ian Anderson's distinctive voice. Mm. Um, and, And I mean that both literally in terms of his, his way of singing his sort of distinct sound and also his, his, his perspective and his philosophy. But at the same time, I feel like there's, you still hear a little timidity about it in his singing. And, you know, we know, Ian Anderson didn't really consider himself a singer. Right. I think the story was, was that they, they got the band together and then sort of looked around at each other and said, Oh, well, but who's going to sing? And right. He was the least bad singer amongst them. <laughs> yeah. So he was sort of like, well, I'll do it. But yeah, you know, I, I hear a note of, of hesitancy in his voice and, and almost, you know, maybe a, a sense of putting on uh, a certain sound But under, but right underneath it is his distinctiveness that we're used to in the later albums.
1: Right. Yeah. Just like the rest of the band, just like the whole, the sound entirely evolves. Um, His, his voice and his sound evolves drastically over the years. Oh yeah. And I think that is in part because he started when he was 21 and he's now 71. Um, But yeah, yeah. Think about that for a second. Um, but also just in general, just the content of the lyrics, the feel of the song, what he experienced last year, you know, the year prior to that. And it just, it, it, it compounds, it builds and it builds and it builds. We'll talk about this far, far down the road, but I think there, there comes a point where it hits its peak, where it hits the, the, the apex of that bell curve. Where it's super solid and it's really good, and then you start to see it go down. And I think that's probably um, right around the same time that he starts straining in his concerts in the live. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which we saw at probably only one concert with him where it wasn't painful to see him sing. Right. Right. Um and every other one it was he was clearly like you I we would see him physically stand on his tiptoes to try to hit those high notes.
0: Right. And I think that they also began changing the keys of some of the songs. Sure.
1: Um in order to to buy a little bit more time. Yeah, keys pacing they they adjusted. Um until eventually he just said screw the band I'll do it myself. Um and the last technical live tall album was 2017 when he played alone with a string quartet. Wow. Um, and the first two songs, it's just, it's just musical and it's beautiful. And it's amazing. It's a string quartet and his flute. And then on the third song, he starts to sing and it's like, Oh, Oh, Ian, why? Sure. Why'd you have to, but he had to. And it's, it's, it's interesting because he, he plays a lot of these really early stuff. Yeah. It's gorgeous. It's really beautiful. And we'll get to that in nine years. But um actually, math wise, I don't know if we stay on if we stay on target, yeah
0: I mean, one of the amazing things about having um this incredible discography and you know having being able to track the career of somebody who rocked for fifty years well, is it almost
1: forty, we'll say
0: forty, sure <laughs> who played professionally for fifty years you know you
1: you get a little bit of like the ages of man, sure. It's incredible. It is. Yeah, it is. A, it is the trajectory. It is seeing him so fresh and so clean, inexperienced, so fresh and so clean, uh, so inexperienced. And and it is it is the you, you you see that learning curve. You see that process of growth. And
0: and you and he's compensating at various points for various things you know i think that it, it, at this stage his talent is compensating for his lack of experience
1: sure um but wow what a talent right yeah and I, I think that's kind of i think that's not an uncommon story for a lot of um bands around that era yeah you know they they had disgusting talent and they hammered their way through it and you could then right you could
0: I mean, also, you know, if we had any talent, we would be using it to compensate for our lack of experience right now. Right. But we're just, we've, we're, we've got a lack of both things. We, we, we don't have, um, we don't have a lot. Beggar's Farm. Beggar's Farm. We are living down in Beggar's Farm. And we are Feckless Momes. We are Feckless Momes, and this is Talk Tall to Me.
1: Thanks again for listening to Talk Tall to Me. A Feckless Momes Audio Network production. Your hosts are Omen Sade and Nick McGill. Produced by Nick McGill.